Hello and welcome back. I am Jake Fritzke again, and I am here again with Trip Gordon. We're back in episode two now to continue discussing what is Anglicanism. In our first discussion, uh, we talked about kind of the, the general basics uh, of kind of getting into what is Anglicanism, and uh, Trip used an object lesson of the telescope, uh, which I'm going to make him recount a little mm -hmm. bit just so that we all remember before we move on. Mm. But before we start, you had a favorite color as a child, did you not? I believe so, yes. Okay. Do you remember what your favorite color was when you were a kid? I think it's the same color now. Okay, and that's yeah. the second question is, has your favorite color changed since you were a kid? No. Um, as best as I'm aware. I mean, it's the most cheesy North Carolina answer, but... It's uh, not going to be blue, is it? It's Carolina blue. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. So, yeah, that, that's, that's always been my favorite color. You can color. tell you're from this state. Yeah. <laughs> I never remember it not being my favorite mm. color. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Carolina blue. Do you have a favorite I, color? I do. I do. And my favorite changed? color has changed since I was a kid. So when okay. I was a kid, my favorite color was teal, uh, um, because I thought it was just really cool. It was a cool sounding color, right? Mm. Like blue and red and green. They were all like those are like the normal colors you learn in school. Whereas like yeah. teal felt like a special color. Mm. Like oh, nobody knows teal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But as I've, I've grown older, my favorite color as an adult is definitely orange. Um, yeah. I just love orange. It's like delightful <laughs> and warm and yeah. like it's, it's unusual, um, especially yeah. in like apparel. Like I don't own like any orange clothing anymore just because like as an adult that has professional clothes largely, yeah. I'm like, I don't have a lot of orange. Um, yeah. children, children of a certain persuasion in North Carolina are taught that a little nursery rhyme for you here, uh -huh. Jacob. Uh, Duke is puke, uh -huh. Wake is fake, the team I hate is NC State. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go to heaven in a red canoe because God's favorite color is Carolina blue. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, uh, <laughs> man, <laughs> that is what I've been uh, <laughs> brainwashed by, uh, I, I might say. So, sorry of others from other persuasions, but. <laughs> Well, um. I think that shows, uh, that's really cheesy to say, it shows your true colors, but I'm going to say it anyway. Well, then as an adult, has your love of Carolina changed since you were a child? Mm. What makes you love Carolina now? Hopefully more than a nursery rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, goodness, I'd, obviously I've been a fan since I was a kid and love going to Keenan, love going to the Smith Center. But as an adult, it really is clear, like, I love when I walk through that campus, I love that campus because I became a Christian there. Mm. And uh, I met my wife there mm. and guys who were in my wedding, you know, and I was in their wedding, like I met there. Um, some elsewhere, <laughs> I have friends yeah. at State and Duke <laughs> and other places. But um, I just, I walk across that campus and I remember um, the Lord saving me. I remember the Lord um, calling me to disciple other guys and seeing other people go from death to life. And yeah. it just is, is a really special place in my heart. And I look back at my childhood, always wanting to go to Carolina sure. and rooting for the Tar Heels. And um, it makes me grateful. <laughs> and I'm sure maybe others feel this a little bit for their teams or schools that like the Lord gave me that desire and he like did something at that place. I, I, and he did something I definitely didn't expect sure. you know um and he brought me out of darkness into light into his kingdom and uh so i yeah it's really come to have a spiritual uh resonance with me versus just a i don't know a competitive and uh academic interest in me you know so yeah oh, that's really cool i'm a big fan of that that's, yeah that's uh 
it, the Lord has fully redeemed your love of Carolina to include the yeah. gospel. <laughs> and you're uh, George Mason. Yes, sir. Yeah, George one of Mason. those in Virginia. You got all the founding father schools. I, yep. I lose track of them. Yes, but you're yeah. the other George, not the Washington one. Yeah, not the Washington, yeah. the Mason fella. Uh, yeah. The other other guy. Uh, yeah, and I would say, uh, well, George Mason is a an admirable university. Uh, with many fine students and faculty. Uh, my dream growing up was never to go to George Mason mm. University. Uh, I went there um, and really, I, I can say the university was secondary to the fact that I too came to Christ in college. Mm -hmm. uh, I came to Christ after my, uh, my freshman year. Uh, actually, my freshman spring um, came, to, came to Christ. And so the rest of my college experience was just dominated by campus ministry. Like mm -hmm. I didn't do basically any school events. I never went to a basketball game. I never went to a sporting event. I never went to a theatrical show or a dance, mm -hmm. like nothing. Um, I was basically at Mason to do campus ministry uh, mm -hmm. the whole time I was there. George Mason University, a yeah. fine university to go to, I suppose. Well, that's awesome. It's cool. We both, you know, have that little bit of a connection there in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Shall we jump in? We shall. All right. Before we do anything with this episode's object lesson, which is the bullseye, I want you to give us a quick overview like, of the telescope. Just give us a really quick breakdown of that. Last week's episode, we just kind of discussed um, the Austin Fair quote, mm -hmm. which, yes, it's a good analogy. Not my own. Austin Fair, smarter guy than me. He put this <laughs> together. But the idea being like, hey, we can sometimes think too hard about this, and it's almost like a kid making a fuss about a telescope rather than actually using the telescope to point us to the object. So a fair saying there is, hey, you use the telescope to make a faraway object that much more clear and that much more beautiful. For him, that example was a planet, a faraway planet that um, you're trying to look at without the telescope um, when you use a telescope to get there. And, and my point there was, you know, sometimes in discussing denominations or traditions, when we, we can be like a boy or you can be in like a room full of telescopes trying to look at a planet but you don't use the telescope to get you to that source of beauty that you're looking at and for us the source of beauty is is worship of the triune god is the gospel and um that's what we're gonna be talking about a little bit more this week uh, i believe so yeah the telescope is a tool that gets us to the object that we're looking at and for us in anglicanism that is our our doctrine our our liturgy our worship and the structures that we have, but so much as you're focused on that, you're kind of missing the point of what those things are meant to be pointing you to. Mm. Yeah. Okay, cool, great. Well then, what is the bullseye? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. that another Austin Ferrer quote? No, no, that's a that's more of me. Uh, <laughs> and um, the, the bullseye is, I mean, it's kind of interesting that the telescope, like in that word is the word telos, you know, mm. the tel the end of something, the goal of something, like the scope of the telos. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so the bullseye, you know, I didn't want to sound that nerdy, so I didn't say the telos, but that is kind of what we're saying is that's the ultimate goal of what we're, we're pointing the telescope to. So to be clear, though, um, I said last week we're going to be talking about word and sacrament, but there, those two things even aren't the bullseye. Those two things reveal to us the bullseye. And the bullseye is, the telos is worship of and fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as revealed through the incarnation, life, ministry, and death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So, and I think it's helpful here for a second. I mean, I, I assume a lot of people have heard the gospel shared uh, in some way, shape, or form, but I just want to be clear 
what we're talking about here when we say the gospel. As a result of our sin, um, we are hindered from entering into that life with God. So imagine it's a real humid day, <laughs> you know, or something has scratched your telescope, so you can't see uh, the object that you're pointing at. That's we, our vision has been blurred by the consequences of of sin, and sin is not unique to the 21st century. It's a reality felt by all as a result of our sin. And what the Bible communicates to us is that this is not only a, a product of what, what others have done, it's not only just a product of what Adam and Eve have done, but it's a product of what we have done. It's a product of what we have participated in. All of us have this bent towards rebellion. And I like to say, at least for myself, you know, uh, we have this tendency to love things rather than the creator of those things. And ultimately in worshiping ourselves rather than our creator, we see the consequences of our fallen nature all around us. I mean, the, the telescope will forever be blurred because of this consequence of sin. Romans tells us, uh, Romans 3, uh, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that Romans 6, a few chapters later, the wages, so for Paul, that the, the just consequences of sin is is death, is, is separation from God. And and the Bible communicates that at some point, you know, in all of our lives, we have to come face to face with this reality that we have, we have missed the mark of God's perfection. We have, we have missed the mark of the bullseye, if you will, by choosing the way of our own pride, our own selfishness, and, and ultimately sin. And we're told time and time throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, that, that no amount of works, no amount of effort to cleanse that scope, no amount of effort to get that scratch out of the way is able to no amount of effort on our own part is able to, to totally remove that, that stain. But the beauty of the gospel is that rather than standing off from afar, God chooses to enter into our brokenness, live the sinless life we could never live, die a sinner's death. In that, he becomes that wage, he becomes that curse, and he bears the weight of the brokenness of the world on himself, on the cross. And you know, he, he doesn't just do this just to, to balance the books, but he, he does this because he loves us to demonstrate his love. Romans 5, for God shows his love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's, that's the heart of the gospel, the, the, the good news, if you will, of Jesus and what enables us to enter into that worship freely, enter into that eternal life with an eternally loving God. Jesus was the Christ. He was the long-awaited king. He was the true king. He wasn't just the Jewish king. He was the true king of the universe. He was God himself in the flesh. And it's his righteousness that stands in place of our righteousness enable to, enabling us to stand before him. So there's a lot more I could say on the gospel, but it ultimately is a gift of grace that everything I just said is unable to be entered into ourselves. There's, you know, been thinking a lot about Tim Keller's life lately, and uh, Keller's a big hero of mine, and one of the quotes that's been shared a lot lately is something he said. It's that the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. That's the heartbeat of the gospel, that you are infinitely valued and loved because the God of the universe lays down his life for you because he thought your life was worth saving. First Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. So yeah, that's the heart of what we're going for. Um, that's the bullseye. Yeah, and that's, uh, <laughs> well, that's, and I hope we clarify that now because everything we talk about moving forward is like, man, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And 
we want to get more of that. <laughs> How do we get more of that? You know, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. that's what all of this is in service of is to, yeah. is to focus us on that bullseye, um, right. which is the gospel, which I think you did an excellent job of walking through there. That was good. That was good. Mm. And I think it will hopefully be of comfort to people that the Anglican gospel is not a different gospel. Um, I've had people ask me that before. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> like, what is an Anglican expression of the gospel? I'm like, look, 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 look. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> like, we, we, there's one gospel mm. and, you know, that's, something communicated in Galatians, right? Like if anyone preaches another gospel, let, it, the reason Paul can say that is like, there is one gospel. There's not another gospel. So there's not an Anglican gospel. There's not a Catholic gospel. There, there is one gospel mm-hmm. and it's the message of Christ and his coming kingdom that we might repent from these ways of life that can't satisfy, turn to him and find life. Nice. There may be some of you listening who are saying, okay, sounds good. Prove it. Yeah. Um, where do you get all that from? Yeah. Um, did Trip Gordon come up with this in a random room in a random church in Raleigh, North Carolina? Where do you get all this from? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we start to turn the corner now into some of my specific content, you know, with these seven points. Um, ultimately, you know, caveat over everything I want to say is that we are a, we are a gospel-centered church. Now, throughout these other seven points, two of which we're just going to be talking about today, it will always begin with that category of we are a blank church, but over everything is we are a gospel-centered church. So but, so we're going to that telos, we're going to that bullseye. What is that source material is ultimately what you're asking. So mm-hmm. we, we start by saying we are a word-based church. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I used a f- few citations there, but there's a whole lot more that could get us there. We are a word-based church because the word reveals to us that gospel. And what I like to communicate is just that most fundamentally, the Anglican Church and Holy Trinity, it seeks to be a church guided by God's word because through it, Jesus and the gospel are revealed to us. And, you know, Holy Trinity, before being an Anglican church, before being a liturgical church, before being a beautiful church, before being a church that has a good kids ministry and <laughs> all sorts of things, like Holy Trinity is a, is a biblical church. And why is it a biblical church? Because the word reveals to us the gospel. I, re- I mentioned this name a lot last week, and I'll try not to mention him too many times. He's just really helpful for me. Uh, Cranmer again. Uh, this is in one of his homilies that he wrote. The first one that became well-known was his homily on Scripture, and this is how he opens it. He says, Unto a Christian man there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of Holy Scripture. For as much as in it is content of God's true word, setting forth his glory and also man's duty, And there is no truth nor doctrine necessary for our justification and everlasting salvation, but that is or may be drawn out of that fountain and well of truth. I love that quote. It's just like, hey, let's just put as high a view on scripture as we possibly can and try to explain it in two sentences. Mm. And I love how Cranmer says, I got you. Uh, (laughs) uh, So why do we start with scripture? Is it so that we can be taught Judeo-Christian values? Is it so we can raise our families well? Is it so we can become good mentors or leaders? And, you know, as valuable as those things may be, most fundamentally, the answer to those questions is, is no, that's not why we start with Scripture. We start with Scripture because in it, it is revealed how we stand before our Maker and how we, how we come to know how we might be saved, how we can continually become aware of our sin, repent of that, turn in faith and trust to Jesus and become uh, more fully alive in Him. So I always tell people, hey, hey, put me up to the standard of Scripture. Put our church up to the standard of Scripture. If we do anything that's out of accord with Scripture, let's talk about it because that's where we're ultimately drawing our life from and that's what reveals to us the love and the comfort of the gospel in, in Jesus. So how would you say then the word tends to shape 
an, an Anglican service. I know last episode we talked about colics and, and how we have those kind of historic prayers. Um, but how does how does the word really like influence an Anglican service? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, man. And I think some people may think, or they might just step into an Anglican service and they think it perhaps is more guided by just rigid tradition. And they might be somewhat surprised to learn like, oh, it's, there's actually a lot of scriptural things happening here. I've heard John say before, actually, what's happening, what should be happening in worship, not just in Anglican worship, but what an Anglican worship intentionally tries to do is you are stepping into another narrative. You know, there's a narrative of the world, and then there's a narrative of redemption and a narrative of new creation, and hopefully worship is guiding you into that. So how does that happen? I mean, the Bible... I'd argue it occupies a central place in our church, so much so that in any Anglican service, you will at the very least hear, you'll hear Old or New Testament read. Uh, you'll hear a gospel reading. And at morning prayer services, you'll even have a little bit more. You'll have Psalm, Old Testament, New Testament. And that's all before the sermon. That's all just word. <laughs> and most of the time, it's they're somewhat long readings. Um, and that's also not considering how much scripture has been laced into our prayers, hymns, and liturgy. I think this is interesting. Um, It's changed a little bit since this point, but in the Reformation era in the 16th century when the prayer book was originally created, in the rhythms of morning and evening prayer, you know, they'd have these little parish communities. And every day, you know, mom, dad, family would walk up to the parish in the morning and then they'd go to work and then they'd finish work, go to the parish in the evening. So you'd have these morning and evening prayer services where they're walking through these rhythms of morning and evening prayer reading all this scripture that I've mentioned. If you did that from January 1st through December 31st, you would have read through the Old Testament once. You would have read through the gospel and Acts three times. You would have read the New Testament three times. And you would have read the 150 Psalms once a month. So 12 times a year. Um, It's pretty remarkable. One scholar actually, he's a a rector uh, out in Australia, also a scholar, Michael Jensen, he puts it this way. The distinctive feature of the new liturgies was the prominent place they gave to the extensive reading of Scripture. It was quite simply a feast of Scripture, and no other order of public, public worship has ever really matched it. When I was getting familiar with the Anglican tradition, this just really became clear to me, and I just became to really, really love it. It was just the the word is so clear and central to guiding the liturgy and guiding Anglican identity um, that is just really, really powerful. Uh, This is all just to say and clarify, we are a word-centered church, not simply because that's what good Christians do or that's what we've always been taught, but because it's through the scriptures that we see Jesus, his gospel. The telescope becomes more clear, the bullseye becomes more clear, and we come to understand our need for him, and we become equipped for mission to, to a lost world. So, we will always not only value the word read, but also preached, proclaimed, and, and taught faithfully. So that's what I mean when I say we're a word-based church. And I, and I think it's not just a, hey, this is what a Holy Trinity has been about, but this is deeply true to the the original Anglican identity mm-hmm. of the 16th century and, and beyond. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, I've heard it said before that uh, that the word is like the the rope that moors the the boat of the church to truth mm-hmm. like and if you if you pull that rope up if you unmoor the boat it just kind of floats away and you have no idea which direction it will mm-hmm. end up in because you don't have that 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 rope holding you fast so 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's the word. That was the first thing you wanted to talk about. But the other thing you said specifically is that we are a sacramental church. Uh-huh. Uh, and there may be people listening, uh, me included, to whom the word sacramental means very little. Uh, <laughs> where you say, oh, sacramental. And we're like, ah, could you define that for us? Yeah. Um, so in, in included in your description of how we are a sacramental church, I'd love to hear, like, what are sacraments right. uh, generally? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, some people don't have that much of a loaded definition and some people have a super loaded, <laughs> overloaded definition of what a sacrament is. So this is where I think it's helpful to to recite verbatim one of those seven declarations of the province. I mentioned that in the first episode, and I, I promise I wouldn't get too deep into those, but this is where one where I think it's, hey, it's actually like really well-worded and just clear. And it just says, we confess, this is the Anglican Church in North America, we confess baptism and the supper of the Lord to be sacraments ordained by Christ himself in the gospel, and thus to be ministered with unfailing use of his words of institution and of the elements ordained by him. So to begin answering your very wise question, Jacob, (laughs) um, (laughs) the sacraments are two, specifically the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, it's often understood as there are seven sacraments. That would include things like uh, penance, confirmation, matrimony, holy orders, last rites. We do not believe that those are sacraments because we see no merit for that in Scripture. Sacraments, Lord's Supper and baptism, they gain their authority because Jesus ordains them as such in the Scriptures. And by extension, it's through these signs and seals. That's how the church has historically understood sacraments as, as signs and seals of the gospel is that it's made the gospel is made tangible and evident to us in these sacraments. So only baptism and the Lord's Supper are true sacraments because only they bear witness to the saving power of the gospel. What I mean by that, just a little bit further here, uh, diving a little bit more into some doctrine. <laughs> this is Article 25 of the 39 articles. So this is some fun Anglican theology for you. The sacraments, again, ordained of Christ, be not only badges or tokens. So those are that kind of signs and seal language of Christians, man's profession, but rather they are certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's good will towards us by which he works invisibly in us and not only quickens, not only alivens us, but it also strengthens and confirms our faith in him. So I avoided some doths and these in that for, <laughs> for the that. sake of the listener. Uh, yeah. uh, we all so appreciate that. In saying we are a sacramental church, I am saying that the Anglican church and by extension Holy Trinity is guided by platforms and highlights the sacraments in our church life. I'm sure you've seen this if you've attended. We celebrate communion at least three times a month, reserving one service a month from a morning prayer service where we wouldn't have the Eucharist celebrated. And we had a baptism as recently as this past week. Okay, uh, that's a really great, like, helpful definition of sacraments. Uh, and the two you mentioned, the two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are a little bit different in all Christian denominations. So could you tell me a little bit more about uh, how Anglicans view them, how Anglicans celebrate them? Right. Yeah. You know, thankfully, yes, there have been a lot of debates around the sacraments for a long time, but thankfully not many wars are fought over them anymore (laughs) like they used to be. Still, there's a lot of confusion uh, that remains among them. We may wonder, in communion specifically, for example, are we just, you know, remembering what Christ did for us? 
or is Christ somehow present with us in the sacraments? Or do the liter do the elements literally become the body and blood of Christ? That's a lot of time like where the debates come down to and where they have come down to throughout history. And we would need a whole other podcast series <laughs> to, to dive into a lot of uh, that detail. But all I can say here is that in being a sacramental church, we are saying, and the church, not just the Anglican church, historically has communicated that it's through these two ordained sacraments that we are given tangible, physical expressions of the gospel that is not merely a commemorative witness. This is what that article was getting out a second ago. It's not just commemorative in that sense. It's not just conceptual, but it's actually effectual. It, it does something to us mm. when we participate in these elements. And by extension, uh, working off of that earlier analogy, the gospel becomes more clear to us by faithfully administering and receiving the bread and the wine and the water of baptism. This is a, a point of another early Anglican reformer, not Cranmer this time, is another guy. His name is John Jewell. This is his thoughts on the sacraments. He says, Christ has ordained them, that by them he might set before our eyes the mysteries of our salvation, and might more mightily confirm the faith which we have in his blood, and might seal his grace in our hearts. He says, as princes, seals, confirm and warrant their deeds and charters, so do the sacraments witness unto our conscience that God's promises are true and shall continue forever. In the word he has his promises, in the sacraments we see them. So this again goes back to our bullseye. Why, why do we care about the sacraments? Has the church just fought a lot of dumb wars over these things? Half answer to that, yes. <laughs> We've, we probably shouldn't have fought as many wars as that. But these things are a really big deal. Mm -hmm. I think if that this mm -hmm. communicates anything because it like communicates to us the gospel. This is a point I actually made this past Sunday where I had the chance to administer communion. You know, John asked two questions throughout the sermon. He said, the two questions were, is God really in control? Does God really care? And when I stepped up to the table, I just said, those are deep questions of the human heart. And the human the human experience needs more than just conceptual comfort. We are more than just, you know, mind, <laughs> minds on a stick, brains on a stick. And when we come to the table, we have the chance not only to just conceptually grasp the reality that he does care, that he is in control, but we have the chance to, to see it. We have a chance to feel it in our hands, to, to feed on it, and to become nourished by the reality that he does dwell within us and we in him. So, this is some more clarity to your original question. The sacraments are, as, as Augustine said, you know, very early, <laughs> that they are a visible sign of a grace invisible. They are outward signs and seals of an inward reality. The articles, again, mentioned that the elements, the, the sacraments, they're not meant, they're, they were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon, you know, to be just, just looked upon and, and admired. They were meant to, as they say, we should duly use them. They are tools that get us more and more of Jesus and make the image of our worship that much more clear. So with this in mind, in regards to the Lord's Supper, just to be abundantly clear, we would deny transubstantiation. And while we deny transubstantiation, we would also regard, so, okay, Paul's there for a second, transubstantiation as the Catholic doctrine of the, the elements literally become the body and blood of, of Jesus. Um, and there is a, a, um, 
a representation of his body and blood, not just a representation happening there. So while we would deny transubstantiation, we would also regard them as something more than just a memorial. Mm -hmm. That would be Zwingli's view of the Reformation. That is that just a, a cause for remembering Christ, Christ's sacrifice. There in the elements is something more than just the conceptual happening. There's something happening there. Christ does actually meet us in the Lord's Supper in some way, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10, we participate in the body and blood of Christ when we take communion. So he dwells within us and we dwell within him. In a sense then, the only thing that is truly transfigured in the Lord's Supper is the congregation itself. I think this is really cool. When we lift up our hearts, that just may seem like some rote language that we say in the liturgy, but when we lift up our hearts, we are drawn into that very place where Christ is, enthroned above all creation, anticipating in this present life the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Where it's, a, it's a kind of a very meta thought there, but it's kind of cool. To, uh, that's what's happening in the Lord's Supper. We get a little glimpse as to what eternity will be like. So I've said a lot on communion, the Lord's <laughs> Supper. Real quick in regards to baptism, the sacraments, that inward reality is the sacraments in baptism, they confirm God's covenant with us. And because of this, we do believe that we are in the same covenant that extends all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham and his family. Thus then, we do believe that God causes his covenant and its corresponding sign to implicate believers and their children and their household. For the Old Testament, that sign was circumcision. For the New Testament, there is this connection between circumcision and baptism that we see in Colossians 2, which then connect, would connect Colossians 2 with Genesis 17. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why people will see children baptized at uh, an Anglican service and where we would stand on, on, on that topic. Great. Okay, so talking about that, the, the second sacrament that we talked about, which was baptism, we have lots of people who come from lots of different church backgrounds, mm -hmm. different uh, worship styles, and, and, and different views of how the, the sacrament of baptism takes place. I mean, there are people who would think, when they think baptism, they think, oh, we're going to dunk somebody in the river versus right. somebody who thinks it's sprinkling. Mm -hmm. So could you just give me kind of a, a brief description, a brief case uh, for the Anglican version of, of what baptism looks like, specifically the baptism of infants? I think that would be helpful for people. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've, I've changed my mind on this topic. I, I've come from a believer's Baptist stance into a more pedo-Baptist, infant-Baptist stance. And for me, there's always seemed to be more burden of proof upon the credo-Baptist, that is, those who affirm believer's baptism, to show that the new covenant sign is now somehow more limited to the recipients than it was in Genesis 17, or somehow a limited to maybe the same number or whatever. In Genesis 17, that's where God extends the sign of circumcision to Abraham. We see this unilateral covenant extending itself. You know, if there's that scene, that weird scene in Genesis 15 where the, the, the torch goes through the pieces, mm -hmm. essentially God communicating, he will bring this covenant to bear. And now the sign is in Genesis 17. But what all that is making clear is that the object and focus of one's faith is Yahweh, is the Lord and his ability to carry out his covenant promises. The object of baptism is not our mature conscious awareness or will, but it's God's ability to bring out these promises. So from my read of the New Testament, it seems baptism is connected with this unilateral covenant. And now that, just, that doesn't just expand to Israel's boys, but it expands to, to women, to Gentiles, through the waters of baptism. And it's interesting, you know, nowhere does Paul or the New Testament seem to clarify for his ancient audience who would have needed this clarification 
around the language of you and your household. Nowhere does he clarify that the covenant sign is now limited to those who are able to make a mature awareness of their confession, as he does with participating in the Lord's Supper. He does this in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, where he's like, hey, be mindful of what you're stepping into. You should know what you're doing before you, you step into participating in this. He, he, so it seems like he cares about this, but he, he never mentions it with regards to baptism. So with all that said, this is why you will see baptism administered here. Ultimately, the inward and spiritual grace for those who participate in the new covenant sign is death to sin and birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, to be abundantly clear, this is not saying that the child who participates in the outward sign, that is the waters of baptism, presently experiences all of those spiritual graces, being regeneration. Ultimately, what I'm communicating there is circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. The parents or the sponsors, perhaps, of the child are placing their faith in the object of the sacrament. Reminder, that is God. God's covenantal abilities to bring about his promises to fruition and bring about the realities claimed over them in that baptism, that they have been marked by God as his own. And now it's the responsibility of the parents and likewise the congregation to support those parents to see that that child is raised in the family of God to claim a mature awareness of these spiritual graces. At their, and at their confirmation, they make that profession of a mature faith. So to be clear, we have people here at Holy Trinity who still ascribe more to a believer's baptism stance. I, I want to communicate, this does not mean that they cannot participate in the life and fellowship of the community. All this clarity above has just been to emphasize why people will see this done in an Anglican setting. There's so much more I could say there, <laughs> Jacob, uh, but I just want to be clear. It can get real heady here in this conversation, but ultimately there's a beauty behind God extending his grace to us regardless of our conscious wills, regardless of our mental capacities. Um, but there is a circumcision of the heart that has to happen. Uh, in the Wingfeather saga I've mm -hmm. been reading lately, one of the big themes of that story is, a little spoiler alert for people, the kids don't realize that they're royalty. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the first book, they realize you're actually the inheritors of the king. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're the sons and daughters of the true king, but you're in exile. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the books is like them living into that identity. And oftentimes mm -hmm. they fail. Oftentimes they live up to it. But part of what's happening in baptism and what parents are doing in baptism is they're reminding their child that like, you're not a part of the world. You are a baptized child of God. Now live into that reality. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a really cool like identity marker I think, and it's a really important in, in our world where identity is heavily questioned. I, I like that wing feather saga mm. <laughs> picture where we're encouraging children to remind them that like you are daughters, sons and daughters of the true king. Now live into that identity. Mm. You can fail to live in that identity just as circumcised boys could fail to live into that identity as Israelites. Sure. They could be apostate. Yep. And so that can still happen in baptism. <laughs> but our job is to mark them as such and then challenge them to live into that identity regardless of the world what the world might say about who they are yeah that's uh that's what i would say <laughs> good 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 um that's a lot um yeah. but it's good i think it, it's necessary and I, I hope it's helpful for it's helpful it's helpful for me and it's hopefully helpful for the listener just to kind of get a, a deeper dive into that so that they don't walk away going wait wait but you didn't you didn't talk about this part mm -hmm. I, I think that was a, a good holistic description 
so that's it. That's, that's, that's the sacraments, and that's the word. The, the, this was the bullseye. Mm. All of this stuff is designed to, to help us get to the gospel. So what are we in for next? The, the notes say we're talking about roots in the next episode. You want to give us a, like a, a taste of what, what are we talking about with the roots? Yeah, for sure. And as we mentioned in the first episode, so we're starting with bullseye. Now we're, we're asking, what's the telescope rooted in? How do we know it's going to stand if the, the winds and the storms come passing by? How's the house still going to stand, if mm-hmm. you will? And that's our roots. And we're going to be looking at our church polity slash church government in our episcopacy. That is why, how is our st- church structured in terms of authority? I was going to look at, we say that we are a creedal church. So we first say we're an Episcopal church. Then we say we're a creedal church. Um, in this, we're saying we are a church shaped by governed by the creeds, the historic creeds of the church. What do we mean when we say that? Like, why do we care? And then lastly, the last thing we say is we are a Catholic church, and that's always a fun one. Uh, (laughs) But there I'm just going to discuss our unity with the historical saints who have preceded us and the universal church around the world, around the globe. So that'll be a fun one. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. As am I. Those are a lot of big words, and I'm hoping that you have lots of time to explain them all to us next time. Yep, absolutely, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) 